0: I am here today with an extremely gifted musician, a trumpeter, an adjunct professor at the Virginia State University with a long history in education, a CEO and entrepreneur with five albums under his belt. Bill McGee, welcome.
1: Hey, thank you very much for having me. I am so happy to be here. We've been looking forward to this.
0: So have I. Uh, Our previous conversation, I still have it in mind. I was playing your music for the last couple of days just to get a feel. I went through the history of your albums just so that I could get a a kind of a a backdrop again in my head of all of the ways that you've sort of played through your history. Um, You've been playing since you were 12.
1: I was 11, actually. Oh, oh. I was 11. I I Uh, think I was, I turned 12 that next February.
0: I see, I see. Mm-hmm. And and have you played any other instruments, anything else? Or has trumpet been the instrument for your entire life?
1: No, for a while, I played baritone horn in school, and I played string bass. Um, I, I had an extra, you know, as seniors in high school, they, a lot of times they have extra classes. right? And so to keep me out of trouble, they put me in the orchestra. And uh, being in the <laughs> orchestra, I learned how to play string bass. Oh, I see. And did you you enjoy it? I loved, I liked it because I got a chance to learn how to read bass clef. Ah. You know, and trumpet only plays in treble clef. And so, you know, when you, whenever, you know, if you're a real musician, you like learning. Well, I play trombone and baritone and they, they read in bass clef. Right.
0: You started out, you were playing trumpet, now you were just doing this on your own when you were 11, going into 12. Um, you had your first professional gig in 1970, if I'm not mistaken.
1: Um, I, I think it was sixty. I, I credit it as the summer of 69. I graduated from high school, and then a friend of mine asked me to uh, perform with a group called the Soul Casanovas. <laughs> <laughs> So I played with the Soul Casanovas, and I think they paid me eighteen dollars And I was like, "Wow, you can make money doing this, you know?" So I was going like, "Yeah, I could, you know. It's better than lifting a barge and toting a bale, you know." Hey, <laughs> playing music they were you didn't they pay were a,
0: they were a jazz sort of a funk jazz component that became. Uh, brick in 1976
1: with the no disco. no 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 so casanovas was actually a whole nother they were like um what they call a wedding band now okay they, we just did all the latest R B stuff like that i i only stayed with them probably for about three or four months during the summer of my After graduating from high school,
0: right. So the band that you played with that became Brick became merged with the other the other group. When when did that occur? Was that Uh, after Soul Uh, Casanova?
1: Yeah, that was like probably six months later, uh, because I started college in the fall of '69, right. And that's when I got with those guys, and I don't think we started the group until after marching band season. Was right I think that's so it was like early 1970 when you mentioned 70 uh the group helafonelia started uh around then and that was the group that morphed into the group brick
0: and they they had that i mean they created daz which is disco and jazz yeah uh, yeah and i know your sound is very i I I listened through all of the music, and there's a very heavy sort of a funk jazz beat to a lot of it. There's some instrumentation in some of the pieces. There's some nice, quiet kind of solo bits to it as well.
1: Yeah, that's that's sequencing. You know, uh, the way you put the album together is kind of interesting. Like you mentioned, I was a CEO, but uh, it's kind of interesting. There's a whole psychology out there in the music industry about how you put albums together where you take 10, 11, 12 songs, or back in the day, it used to be eight songs. But if you think about Stevie Wonder's song in the key of life, we studied not only the songs, but we studied the sequencing, how he put certain songs in certain places to kind of like tell a story. And sometimes, you know, sometimes we do a good job. The album sequence is goodness. Sometimes, you know, I don't know. But that's, that's a whole nother psychology as to where you, it's almost like performing live. Uh, we think of it as almost like writing out a set for a live gig. Right. And you start off, you, want, you don't play all your fast songs and then play three or four slow songs. You know what I'm saying? You kind of like try to tell a story, kind of move the audience. And so that's the way we do album sequence. And sometimes it works, you know, sometimes it doesn't.
0: Well, every, all the albums that I listen to. So you have five albums. Uh, you've It started with this one is for you. <clears throat> there was a lot. I found that in this one is for you. And in Soul Man, you had some covers in there uh, of other songs, but love the way you turned them, love the way that you twisted the song. So I'm listening, I'm going, I'm not quite hearing that. So-. And then I all of a sudden hear the song that you were doing, but in the way that you did it, it was, this is unique. This is really well done then you get to still bill now the funny thing is after after chase the sunset because you did them every two years so you started with this is the this one's for you in 2002 Soundman 2004 chase the sunset 2006 and then there's this long pause now i don't know if that was while you were doing your uh, director of instrumental music at uh, Morehouse College. If this is when you were involved in teaching more than doing music, and then all of a sudden in 2015, still Bill comes out as though I'm
1: still here. I'm back. I'm still <laughs> Bill. I'm still here. No, you know, I I always say I tell people I said I had nine grandchildren, and during that period of time, but the real truth is I didn't have any. Their mothers had them. I just was, you know what I'm going like, well, you didn't have no babies, man. Why are you telling people you had nine grandkids? Uh, their mothers had, I, my wife and I were fortunate enough that we had nine grandkids starting in 2003. And the first one was born. So 2002 wasn't, uh, was cool because we were engaged, but we had not gotten married. And then in 2004, um, you know, there was uh the next album and then two thousand and six. but what happened was in two thousand and seven um my granddaughter was born, so now we had three i think two thousand seven two thousand eight, and then in two thousand and nine, uh my son had triplet boys. Oh god so we went from three grandkids to six grandkids in one day and the triplet grand the triplet boys were kind of like uh, over the top for young parents mm-hmm. his wife was 19 i think she was 19 or 20 and she had she all of a sudden she had four kids so you know i a lot my life was like Hey, you got to do something to help out with these kids, you know. So that's around the time that Steel Bill was done, and uh, so you know, I, if if you know that on the new album there's a song called "Life Got in the Way," and that's what I tried to tell everybody. I said, you know, sometimes or another, you have to put certain things on pause to deal with real life, and that's what happened with me. I also ended up with prostate cancer. And so it. that, yeah, so I was, I had prostate cancer and so I had to have the surgery. So that was another whole thing, you know, so um, it's just life, man. You, this album, the new album, Tree of Life was going to be called Life Got in the Way. Um, but uh, there are other circumstances caused us to change the name to the Tree of Life that we'll probably talk about. So that's well, kind of like, that's the sequence of the albums. Yeah, right?
0: I was going to say that you're, you're sequencing. This is, this is. I thought this was uh, part of your sequencing, that you give people a flavor of you over two-year mm. segments so that they get a chance to get really enveloped in the music, and then you pause.
1: Every two years, man, this is supposed <laughs> to be my 10th album. And and every two years I was supposed to put an album out because of uh, the, the amount of time it takes for your album to get exposed and singles to be released and everything, right. it, putting an album out more frequently than every two years is counterproductive. So, you know, I actually was supposed to have another album out, but life got in the way.
0: hmm <laughs> Which is why, I mean, Tree of Life, I would say, is probably better than Life Got in the Way simply because more things happen to you than just, just, you know, things getting in the way, there's the whole idea, the whole scope and circle of, of life, right, that, yes, that yeah. it's the tree of life, there are branches where things are getting in the way, and then there's branches where it's, you know, joy and happiness. When did you have time to start, and I'll start with the 804 flavor label, before it became the 804 Music Group. So when did you have time when you were doing this and with the grandkids and with your personal experiences, personal life things that had happened? When did you have time to have all of these things come together?
1: Well, see, all of that was before my solo career. Uh, I, when I came off the road, basically in 82, I started producing other groups. So I started a record label called Funtown back then. Kind of. And then uh, Funtown Music Media, I remember uh, one of the artists I worked with who I've spoken to, I spoke to him yesterday, He, back in 92 or 91, I told him, we're changing the name of the label from Funtown Records to Funtown Music Media. And I said, because the future music is going to be done electronically through media. And, you know, I was seeing all of this stuff, right? And he reminded me, he says, you know, you told me in 91 that we would be, because at the time AOL, AOL was happening and you used to get the little <laughs> AOL disc in the mail, right? And mm-hmm. this is, a lot of people don't, if you look at the sequence of time, I always look at my experiences i of going like, well, I was doing AOL on a 300 bar modem that made a lot of noise when it cranked up. And I was able to get on the internet way back in the early nineties. And I could see, I was saying, look, man, this is not records, any records and tapes anymore. It's called music media. So I changed the label to Funtown music media. And that eventually ended up being 804 flavor. uh, And, and, and then eventually 804 jazz and 804 kids, 804 soul so that's why it's the 804 Music Group, because I have the... Uh, I, I tell you what it was. It was branding. It was like when I was doing the Funtown thing, I realized I could not get the website Funtown because somebody already had that. Ah, I so, I, see. so I started looking for a brand. And because we live in the 804 area code here in Virginia... Uh, even way early in the 90s I picked 804 as the brand uh and so I started uh getting all the I started getting all the URLs so if it was an 804 gospel 804 soul 804 kids 804 jazz 804 flavor so I I actually owned the brands for all of those URLs and so that all became the 804 music group right so
0: that happened pre so that happened post trussell so you were with trussell trussell in the 70s right that was the r&b funk band
1: yeah 79 78 we had our hit love injection in 79 80 and uh, it came out in the fall of 79 and it was like peaking on the charts in early 80 um and so uh and then after that i was working with Sugar Hill Gang and Grandmaster, all the rappers, right. uh, 81, 82. And I, I like to tell the story about uh, we were doing all of these rap hit records. And a lot of people don't know all of those records we did originally were live. I mean, were real music. right? Because sequencers and drum machines actually were just being invented. So everything we were doing right then and there, even the, the big hit rappers, Delight, that was built off of the chic record good times that record was actually played live with by real musicians Mm -hmm. but we we were in the studio working on a song for either grandmaster flash or one of the other groups and by the way grandmaster flash was the first rap group inducted in the rock and roll hall of fame and i played on their first hit record so i I, you know i feel a little bit but so we were in the studio doing that, man. And, and the two keyboard players came in and both of them had these new synthesizers that will allow you to play multiple notes at one time. And they were doing that. And I looked at the guys and I said, we just got fired. <laughs> and I was, I was serious, man. I said, we just got fired. And the real truth is if you look back at 81, 82, When Blondie and The Genius of Love and different songs around that time in the early 80s, this is post-disco. Yeah. This is post-disco when techno music started. And if you look at the history of that, man, everything went electronic. Drum machines, uh, synthesizers, that whole electronic sound just knocked all of the acoustic musicians, and horn players out of business, man. So I decided to get a job. <laughs> I decided to get a job, man. Record companies were catching it and folding. We were working with Philly International at the time, recording with the OJs, and uh, this is the horn section I worked with called Chops. Yeah, And we did all the Sugar Hill stuff. And uh, we were working with the OJs and stylistics and... Pa- we were, man, we were at the top of the food chain for R&B soul music. And even that label folded, you know, even they decided, man, look, things have changed so much with this rap stuff that they went a whole different route, you know, and uh, we're going like, man, look, (laughs) we're with the big rap groups. We're making all the hit records. Then they bring in the electronic stuff. Then we get with the big, R and B soul labels, and they, and then they decide to stop. <laughs> Life got in the way. So I got a job. I got a job. <laughs> I got I a mean, job. The,
0: the music stylings. You know, you could they did the, the sampling, horn sampling, and drum samplings, and you play it all on a moog, on a on a midi, whatever you wanted to put it on, and you yep. could play it out. But I mean, that lost flavor probably mid-90s, early mid to late 90s you started losing that sensibility of oh you play in a midi you played a moog because Um, then that became the the old hat back in the 80s it was oh you play a live instrument Mm, mm, that's kind of i don't know we've got this we got this synthesizer that does way better than what you can produce and then all of a sudden people started hearing real music again and saying you know what this techno i mean it's got its place in history but i want the real thing again and and I'm sure by that point in time, you probably got tapped on the shoulder. Hey, they're bringing live back. You got to come back, man. You play really well. You've got to come back.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, it 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 was the mid 90s. But even then, a lot of the hip hop stuff had taken over. And so a lot of the uh, when you start thinking about LL Cool J and Run DMC and you know, people like that, man, where, you know, I mean, even if like Run DMC, when you think about the rock stuff they did, you know, and Walk This Way and, you know, it things, rap dominated for the longest. And I guess to the day, it still dominates a little bit. When they were talking about, everybody's talking about Drake. I know, that, you know, Taylor Swift is, is doing well, but I guess what you would find out is uh pop, rock, Rap, hip-hop kind of merged together. That's why you see a lot of groups who even do live stuff have a DJ. You know, a DJ has now become a member of the band. Yeah. You know, whereas before you would go like the DJ plays during the breaks, you know, and no, the DJ now is a part of the band, man. And, you know, so uh I think a lot of it has merged together, but a lot of acoustic musicians are still concerned that with the what happened uh, after that was the streaming thing came in. Oh, you know, the big bugaboo was Napster, man. Yeah. Napster in the late 90s. I was explaining to my class yesterday how Napster, I was telling them that Chat GPT is going to be as revolutionary as Napster was in music. And a lot of people don't remember that Napster threw all the record companies, man. These guys freaked out. Out When they found out that somebody could send an email with your record Mm -hmm. and Napster, you know, remember all of them sued Napster, sued, you know, but Napster changed the paradigm and MP3s led the way now to streaming. Well, and so a lot of that stuff is still impacting uh, musicians as far as revenue is concerned. Because right now, uh, young people have always been great, the biggest consumers of music. So right now, Drake and other people like that are, are getting millions of streams and making money because of it. And then artists who are not as well known are getting thousands of streams and making pennies. Yeah. And it's it's kind of it's kind of rough at this point for depending on the style of music. But then you got John Baptiste and then you got different people who are kind of breaking out of that cycle and saying, look, I got something more to offer. So, you know, hey, everything changes, man.
0: And that's, I mean, that's true of every industry when you look at it, that that you'll have waves of when the people that are supplying content are being let's say abused by the system because it's easier for us to put everything out there and you're just part of the play, but people get tired of it. The people that are, they say, you know, we want something different. We want to change that paradigm. And it cycles back to where the people that are producing are the ones that actually have the control. And that goes, that's been through history that that's been the case. I mean, you're either in control or you're not in control. And when you're not in control, as long as you're doing what you love doing, and you're not really concerned with, I mean, like you say, I got a job. When things kind of fell off, I got a job. If they've got a means of supplying their own, you know, their capability of having their wealth or having their food on the table and a house over their head, um, that sustains them. But if they're producing content that makes them happy, they'll do that for the period of time until the cycle comes back and all of a sudden they're in control again right it's the people that don't have the the drive to stay in it you know they've been doing it they enjoyed it but they're going to go and do something else and not come back those are the people that are probably either we've lost something phenomenal because there wasn't enough support for them and i mean you with your record label with with 804 music group are helping the smaller groups, the smaller people sort of stay there, stay connected. Um, and also with the the education that you're doing, you're training the up and coming musicians about what's what's there and you have vision to see what's coming down the pipe, talking about chat DDP GDP, to them, they may see it as a tool they can leverage as opposed to something that will wipe them off the face of the earth and not not in the physical sense, but in the musical sense, that yeah. it may be able to come up with different stylings of music that you'd go, well, well, then why am I here? Right. Teaching them about it, to use it, as opposed to being afraid of it, that's where you're helping, educating those individuals, move forward, stay positive, keep on, keep on track, do the things that you love doing. So that makes me happy. It also... You know, like I say, I'm I'm aware of the fact that cycles happen. So things that are coming right now that look like they're going to take over, give it time; they'll drive off. People get bored yeah. with it; they'll move on to something else. I mean, we've seen your music. You start in 2002, and then you know, wait for nine years for the next album to come out. When it yeah. does, phenomenal. Glad yeah. we yeah. glad to have the opportunity to hear you again. I would have liked to have seen a couple of albums in the middle, but as you say, life happens. So yes, it does you didn't give up you came back to us and and we got the music so what i'd like to know though is where i know you got your trumpet when you were 11 12 um where did it start for you where did music start for you were you classically trained did you pick it up on your own did you just sort of come into it
1: no no school school bands have always been where horn players get their training I mean, almost everybody I know that's a horn player started out in some school, junior high or elementary or high school band. And, uh, you know, I laugh because somebody the other day said, well, you know, he can't read. I said, I don't know horn players that can't read because horn players don't usually pick up music by ear. They usually pick it up by being a part of some organized band program." Uh, so I started in in middle elementary school my last year and then middle school and then high school. But let me just quickly uh, tell you the story, man, of what inspired me. My mother taught on college campuses. And so I remember uh, someone had tried to get me to wanted me to play cello back when I was like in the sixth grade. And I was going like, nah, I don't think so. And then I uh, when when I had a chance to get in the band, my sister was already playing clarinet. And then my mother and they said, well, you got a choice of trumpet or drums, right? Or I don't even think saxophone at the time, but I just think, you know, like trumpet or drums, my mother made the choice for me. It was, you're not playing drums. You're, never <laughs> not, you're not bringing a drum in my house. So that made it easy. But I tell you what happened. Uh, my mother was a, a single parent raising two kids and teaching college. And every time the college band went on a trip somewhere, they needed a chaperone for the young ladies. Well, because she wasn't married, she didn't have to ask permission, you know? She had to ask, hey, is it okay if I go, you know? So they would always ask her to go. And then she said, well, you know, I got to bring them on with you, you know? And so, cause we were young, you know, 10, 12 years old. Great. So. We got a chance to go with the band to see and hear other bands, man. And uh 1965, 64, 65, we went down to Tallahassee to see the great Florida AM marching band. Now, Florida AM is probably was the most famous marching band historically black schools ever. They did the Coca-Cola commercials. They did, they had over a hundred and something people, man. And uh, they played both. Concert music, classical music, and hip music—you know the music of the times. Right. So we went down to Florida a and with Morris Brown, and we saw both of those bands. I did do a James Brown routine, man, where they were—the horn players were playing and dancing, and they looked like they were having so much fun. And then I remember the drum majors hit the split like James Brown, and they had five of them. And all five of these guys hit the split, and then they slid back up and didn't use their hands or anything. And I'm going to myself, I got to do, I want to <laughs> be a part of something like that. So I always tell people I was inspired by Florida A&M University Band and Morris Brown, the competition they had. Florida AM was a lot bigger. Morris Brown did a fantastic job. But Florida A&M had a whole lot of trumpet players and a whole lot. Of, and you got to you got a chance to see yourself. You know, they say for lack of vision the people shall perish. Mm-hmm. And so you have to show somebody what it is that they can be, you know, and I think that's in reality. If I get a little sociological on you, that's what happens with a lot of kids in the inner city. They don't have a vision of people doing things on a successful level, They don't see anybody putting on a suit and tie going to work every day. They don't do that. So for lack of a vision, the people shall perish. And I got a chance by my mother being a college professor to see all of these kids who were in college planning on being uh, engineers. and But they were having so much fun playing music. And it was just like, that's what I got to do. I got to go to college and I got to play music you know so hey that was the vision and 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 I'm still I'm teaching college now man and this was almost 60 years ago this is 58 years ago and now I'm teaching kids in college to have that vision
0: so you you've been doing that for quite a while was that your the college route for you that you know you saw these kids in college playing in band and in your head you said okay i have to go to college and be in band and was that the path that you took that you said to yourself my mom's an educator i'm going to be an educator as my as my fallback position but i want to be in band i want to play the trumpet is that how it went for you
1: well actually and no (laughs) my my grandmother was also a college graduate i always like to tell people i'm so fortunate man i'm a fourth generation college graduate Uh, my great grandfather was a college was a college professor and uh my grandma we're talking about 18 uh, or late 1800 early 1900s Mm. so my grandmother was uh, a college graduate and she of course was very instrumental in in my life and she said to me, she said, do yourself a favor. She says, I know you want to make it in this music industry, in this world. She says, but major in education so you'll have something to fall back on in case things don't work out. She says, I support you 100% in your endeavors to make it. And she used to always buy me little outfit things, that something to go with it that was different and weird. Something She said, this might look good. You know, so she was very much a supporter of me. Uh, being an artist, but she also was wise enough to say, but major in education in the event, something doesn't turn out. You can get a job teaching and and you'll be able to take care of yourself. And I tell people today some of the best advice anyone ever gave me because nobody knew that the industry was going to take that turn in 82. And uh, even though I didn't start teaching in 82, um, It took me another three or four years before I decided to go actually into the classroom um, because a friend told me he was taking a leave of absence band director and he said hey look they need somebody to fill the position and I I was in private industry at the time and I decided I said hey let's uh, one of the things that my family had always talked to me about was the benefits of health insurance and when, you, when you're teaching and other things, there's some benefits you do get. You get retirement benefits, you get health insurance. So I was smart enough to know, I said, look, you're 30-something years old now. Um, you know, I was probably 34, 33 or 34, and I had done 10 years or more in the music industry. You know, I had given it my best, and I'm going like, well, you got to start thinking towards the future. So the wisdom of my grandmother was probably what, set me on the path to also having an education background
0: oh excellent And do you pass on her words to your students or do you have that that seed of, of wisdom yourself that you've figured out throughout the your lifetime oh. in music do you have something that you tell every student the best thing that you tell them as advice to get them moving forward what do, what it, do you do?
1: It's interesting that you asked that question because yesterday I was like fuming. Because we're coming to the end of the semester, and there were kids not showing up to class or kids who have not been to class to show up. And I was giving them the, I was reading them the ride at. And you know what I told them? I said, and the guy was saying, well, I, I said, well, where were you uh, last week? Or where were you when? You didn't come to class. Yeah, I had something else I needed to do. I said, it took me eight years to finish college. Okay? It took me eight years to finish college. And he like, wow. I said, okay. I had other things to do, and so it took me eight years to finish. Think about that. All right. Then I shared with him. I said, but guess what? My father told me said they didn't ask you when you finished. They asked you if you finished. So the fact that you're in school is good, but you need to realize it can take you a little. One of them asked me, said, well, how old were you when you finished? I said I was about twenty eight. He said, oh, that's not too bad. <laughs> I go like, man, I said, I wish I could have finished at 22, mm. you know, because I would have been out there doing some other things. But, uh, you know, that's what it was. Yeah, I passed that information on all time. But you know what else I tell them that I think is so wonderful as far as, uh, as what I'm doing now? I tell them that. I'm, I'm so excited to still be in the music industry at my age because of the technology. Mm. I said, I'm just for fortunate enough that I was one of those people who was technolo- technologically inclined. And so the technology, I, you remember I just told you I was doing AOL in the early nineties, right? On a computer. <laughs> and we were, we were doing music on the computer way, uh, you know, long time ago. And so, um, I I tell them, I said, I feel like I'm 18 years old. I tell my kids, my students, I said, I feel like I'm 18 years old because the things I can do now, if I could have done them when I was 18, I'd have been Prince or somebody. I don't, you know, it's just that the technology allows you now to, you and I are talking from thousands of miles away and we can see each other and we can hear each other. Man, this is the Jetsons. You and I are living the Jetsons, right? When we used to see the Jetsons on TV, and they would be talking to somebody on a speaker, you know, and we're going like, "Man, you can't talk to anybody and see them on a TV while you're talking." <laughs> you know, but look, look at where we are now. And then, uh, then right there where I park at school, they just put in uh, charging stations for EVs, mm. and I'm going like, "Yes, yes, I'm living the future." You know, and 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 so that's what I I think if anything I try to do is inspire young people to live the future and think about what things are gonna be like when you get my. I asked a kid, uh, one of my songs on the most recent album, Summers in Surrey, that you probably listened to. Yeah. Uh, that he was one of my former students, and we actually got a chance to meet up for the first time since the pandemic last week. And we hung out together because the music. He sent me, we sent it electronically, and we kept saying, hey man, we gotta get together, we gotta get together. And he and I stood outside of the building where the music is, the music building. Right. And I told him, I said, Myron, you know, 50 years ago, man, I was standing here at your age. I was your age standing here 50 years ago. I said, what do you think it's gonna be like for you 50 years from now?" I said, can you imagine? What music is going to be like for you, 50? I said, I'll be long gone. I said, but just think about where music is going to go 50 years from. He's 22 years old. He's a senior in college. When I met him, he was a freshman. Uh We talked about, I said, he let me hear his music. He was in my class. I said, man, I said, you got to do some music for me. He says, I don't do jazz. I said, I didn't ask you to do jazz. I asked you to do music. I'll do the jazz, mm. I'll handle the jazz part, you do the music part. And and we worked together and we got a recording out together and I told him, you know, I'll do all I can to help promote him. And But I I think he and I standing there reflecting on the next 50 years was like amazing to me. <laughs> well, you know, the first song on the new album uh, Flight Time, which is yeah. my, my single that's out now, is doing really well. It's you know, it's in the 40s, going hopefully, it's still going up. Uh, Flight Time was recorded 50 years ago by Donald okay. Bird, yes. And then, and, and then there's another song on there. Uh, I don't know what it is, but a show is funky that features Fred Westing on trombone. It was recorded 50 years ago. I did both of those songs as tribute songs mm-hmm. because they were both released in 73 and and i did both of them and i'm going like man these songs are still viable 50 years later exactly so it, it's hits it, exactly what you're saying it it mu- real music is gonna last
0: yes absolutely it may change its face you know i i spoke to somebody that had taken a, a song by bill evans someday my prince will come and they sure, had altered that. it and and played it in a slightly different way but it sounded so phenomenal right. and yet it's something from 60 70 years ago sure, and sure. something like dave brubeck's take five i mentioned this to a lot of people that it's an iconic piece of music that as soon as you start to hear that playing you know who that is that's dave absolutely Brubeck.
1: absolutely you
0: will not think it's somebody else you're not going to think hey is that is that uh is that drake is that right. no you're
1: not gonna no, think you're that. not that's right that's right he may borrow. he may sample that
0: to do something. But as soon as you hear it, you go, what is that Drake with Bill, uh, with with uh, Dave Brubeck? Yeah. You know, I mean, you'll know it and it stays because it was created in a way that makes you feel it inside. You feel it and it gives you an emotional roller coaster. in some days, and some days it just calms you right out.
1: Right? Well, the truth is, I don't know if you can digitize soul or feel. And that's what you're saying, which is, You know, you might be able to digitize notes and rhythms and patterns and all of this other stuff and then duplicate them and say, well, you know, uh, the algorithm is saying, well, we'll duplicate this pattern, we'll duplicate that pattern. But you can't duplicate, you cannot digitize feel. And that's the one thing that's probably the positive, which is as we go forward, real music is going to have to be more, has has to have more feel to it mm-hmm. for, for artists to be successful. They're going to have to dig deep down and make sure that they're actually pouring their soul into the music and not just going through the motions. You know, yeah. I think my biggest concern is how music will be delivered in the future. Right now we're having a revenue problem because, uh, CDs are not being purchased and the way that they're distributing royalties off of the streaming services is based on uh some ludicrous algorithm as to how many streams you have yeah. so so an artist who's only getting 10 twenty thousand streams uh so what if he had sold ten or twenty thousand he would have made, some, some singles, he would have made some money. Right. That's but right. But now, but now he's got 10 or 20,000 people who have listened to his music and he gets $2. Yeah. You know, and that's, we've got to find a way to work that out because had in the past had 20,000 people bought my 45, I might've ended up getting $10,000 out of that deal. Cause even if I got 50 cent on a dollar, as a record label, you know what I'm saying. Um, I would have gotten ten thousand people out. You know, twenty thousand people. I'd have got some money. Now, twenty thousand people can listen to one of my songs on on Spotify, Pandora, or one of the streaming networks. I'd be lucky to get two dollars.
0: Yeah, and that's not that's not right for the for the artists that are coming up. Some of them absolutely phenomenal genius artists, but because they don't have a huge following because they're not being distributed widely, they're not being, right. they're not being promoted properly. They're not making any money and they're going to wind up wind up walking away, taking their second choice in things to do because they'll find that the industry is just sucking the life out of them. They're producing things from their heart and soul that aren't being valued appropriately. Right. And until we eliminate that.
1: Well, I, I think the government, I, I'm a member of the Grammys, uh, I'm a voting member of the Recording Academy. Right. And I, every year, I participate in our legislative lobbying uh, program where we actually talk to legislators about the problems in the recording industry. So i met with my, I went up and met with my um, U.S. House representative, uh, Jennifer McClellan, um, earlier in the year and, and, and made sure that she understood that as as a constituent, we would like for her to make sure we represented in in there, the music people. So that's what's gonna, it's gonna take musicians getting more involved politically, asking them to make sure that these streaming services learned, they, they need to do a different curve. They need to pay lower streams at a higher rate than the streams that are doing two million and three million. You know what I'm saying? Cause because that means that Drake will get three or four million dollars and a, a person like myself will get three or four dollars mm. because I don't have two million people listening to me. So it's it's you know it's different things like that. They probably need to do a, a breakdown where there's a, you know, some type of slope. Where you know if you if you hit a thousand streams or something, you get you know ten, twenty-five, thirty dollars or something. You know, some minimum payments that the that the uh streaming services will do to aspiring artists or artists who don't necessarily have this huge because like I said, if I had sold twenty thousand forty five, I would have made ten thousand dollars. Yeah, but yet 20 thousand people have listened to my music and I get two dollars yeah. there's something wrong with that that's music
0: it. industry should veer off of that path and allow for you want to listen to music you have to pay for it that's, that's simple right. you that's know right. because if we're going to be in an in a, in a planet that's concerned with money then we need to be paying people to do it appropriately we shouldn't be you know that would be the equivalent of a streaming service for education and paying educators by the number of people that go to their class, then, I'm sorry, there'd be no educators.
1: <laughs> yep, that's true. You know, uh, it re- makes me reflect back to what I told my the young man who I work with. I said, do you know that one day you'll be able to send all of your music to a hard drive in your car and be able to listen to all the music? You won't even need a CD player. I told him that. I saw the future and I said, and this was before Bluetooth, man, and this is before all of that stuff, you know. And I was saying, I can perceive that one day you'll just be able to send all your music to your car. And just think about it, now, man—you can download with with all your music and your Pandora playlist and your spot. I mean, your Spotify playlist. There's
0: every, my hard drive. Everything. <laughs> I carry you it can, everywhere.
1: Carry your hard drive. Would you plug it up and keep on going?
0: But the. The fact that you're in musical education, I mean, you didn't just go into education field and, you know, teach kids math. You're teaching them about music. You're teaching about music technology. You're teaching about recording engineering. Um, it's, It's as though you've taken two parts of your life. You have the musical component of your life and you have the musical education component of your life. You've linked it together. So the things that you've learned through the years of being on the road and playing the music are helping you with the teaching the next generation of musicians about the music that they're doing. And I imagine that there are students that you work with that have that spark that suddenly make you think of something that you were thinking of doing. And I like that. I'm going to try that out with real music. I'm going to try that with music. So it's a back and forth, I imagine,
1: for you. Well, several of my former students... our particip- matter of fact, the co-producer of this album is one of my former students. And I taught him when he was 16 years old. <laughs> and, and now he's like 50. And um, he, uh, the song on there, number five, I think, On and On, is a song that he wrote that was on an earlier album that he did. And it was all electronic. And I said, hey, man, I, I like that stuff, but I want to do it acoustic. I said, so send me the track. And so he sent me the music, and I took out all of the electronic stuff and had a bass player, a guitar player, piano player, percussionist. I had the real musicians come over, and we recorded it. And uh, and then we used the vocals, some of the vocals that he had, and we brought in a, one of my other students who is also a singer, uh former student who's a singer, and they recorded this song. So... Exactly what you're saying is, I, I am just so thrilled, man, that I'm working with musicians that I taught when they were 15, and they're almost 50 years old now. <laughs> so that's your crazy, linkages right? have
0: stayed, they've stayed for a lifetime for you, that people that you've met and encouraged, you've actually seen them grow up and become what you've wanted them, they've taken them in yes. the direction that you want, and you're actually, they're helping you, they're working with you. So
1: Yes, that's right.
0: It's it's more than just, you know, oh, I've got a student that, that that went on to succeed. It's I have a student that went on, succeeded, and I'm working with them. They're helping me out. That's
1: it. On all of my albums, I have at least one or two former students who are participating on all of my albums, people wow. that I worked with uh, when they were, and they're interesting because I always remind them, says, look, I knew you when you were 15, so don't start <laughs> <laughs> so it's, it, you know, it's, it's fun because I I knew them when they were wanting to be in the music business. yeah. And a lot of them have been very successful in the music business. I don't know. A lot of people know that I mentored D'Angelo and D'Angelo is a multi Grammy winning number one hit record. Uh, yeah. he, they call him the father of Neo soul. And I met him when he was 12 <laughs> and, um, and his, he was performing at the time, man. He had a routine like Prince when he was 12 years old. And so I went to his mother and I said, I want to include him on all of my talent shows with my high school kids. And she said, hey, no problem. This is what he wants to do. So I, every year when we did our high school talent show, even when he was in middle school, he would come and perform with the big kids. And in his book and in some of the speeches, he he's given me credit saying that uh, the program I had had all the best students and that it was what encouraged him to work hard. And I told him, I said, Michael, his name is Michael Archer, but they call him D'Angelo. I said, Michael, you know, um, I used to use you to inspire my kids because I said, and y'all know that kid, Michael. Michael's going to come over here and and make you all look bad, right? And <laughs> I used to inspire them. right? I said, that little kid's going to embarrass you. <laughs> and, and 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 he said, but Mr. McGee, he says they were the ones that inspired me because I knew I had to compete on the same level with these other kids, you know. So that was that's such a beautiful thing, man, to have had chance to work with young people and to see them go on and win Grammys and become very, you know. Um, I don't always tell people, you know, the influence I had on D'Angelo, but um I actually just gave him the platform where he could compete on the the level. And the talent show that I started reflects back to what you said. I brought all of my experience from the music industry to the classroom. And I just showed kids. I said, look, and they know I was hard on them, man. I said, but look, if you want to be out here in this music industry, you got to bring your A game. You can't come out here thinking that you're going to be average or below average and compete. And so uh, most of them credit, you know, they they just credit me for for raising the standard for what it was that they. But it all because I had gone through the same thing. I had been out there on the road, man, with with so many top notch artists. And uh, I knew that you had to be ready and I tell people, it goes back to what my grandmother said uh, about me- music education and being ready. I said, the thing that I tell young people is that my education prepared me for when opportunity came knocking. In other words, I even though I knew I wanted to be out there in the music industry and it took me so long to finish college because I was in and out, going on the road, doing different things, I said it was the education that allowed me to step up when the OJs needed a string arrangement and I was able to do it like in an hour and a half. I was able to sit there and write out a string part for one of the biggest soul groups in history (laughs) in like an hour and a half. But I was prepared because I had the education and that's what I try to get kids to understand is you, you may not value education, you know, from what you see because you know it doesn't go on stage with you. I mm-hmm. said, but having that education helps you to be prepared when the opportunity comes knocking. That's right. I tell kids that I went back, I came back to school after all that stuff in Atlanta with brick and the group. Cause it, cause the guys called me to come back and join brick. And I told them at the time that I was, you know, more into trying to finish school and that I wished them well, but I wanted to finish school at the time. No. And I tell my students, I came back to school to learn. I didn't come back to school to graduate. I didn't come back to school to get a degree. I came back to school to learn because I realized, having been in the music industry when I was 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, I realized out there in the music industry, there was so many people who really didn't know what the hell they were doing. you know. And then there were other people who were really good at it. You know, and those were the guys who, uh, like, like the guy who, uh, one of my people I looked up to was a guy named Scott Edwards. Yeah. Scott Scott passed away about two years ago. He went to my high school. Scott Edwards was a a, a, a a musician. Everybody in his family was a musician. He was extremely talented. He played trombone. Now this is what we're talking about: transferring that knowledge. He played trombone in the high school band and he taught himself his senior year to play bass guitar because bass guitar and trombone read basically the same music uh, there. And, you know, if you can play an E on trombone and you know where the E is on bass, you can play the same music. Well, he was an excellent reader. Okay, so real quickly, the story is Stevie Wonder, uh, Michael Henderson, who was the bass player for Stevie Wonder, quit to go work with Miles Davis and Stevie Wonder was coming through Atlanta and needed a bass player and somebody told him to call Scott Edwards and they called Scott Edwards and Scott flew in to the gig and played the Stevie Wonder gig sight unseen just by reading the music he didn't have he didn't even have a rehearsal he played the whole Stevie Wonder gig because he was he was trained and he had that And Scott ended up leaving with Stevie and never came back to Atlanta. Uh, And he ended up playing on some of the biggest hit records in history. He played on Sarah Smile by Hall & Oates. He played on I Will Survive by Gloria Gaynor. He played on Isn't She Lovely by Stevie Wonder. Mm. I mean, Scott, it's just one of those... And see, he was one of my inspirations. I am going like... You mean Scott from my high school is now the bass player with Stevie Wonder because he could read music? I need to learn as much as I can so I'll be prepared when an opportunity like that comes by. I wish more students and young people could understand that. That, you know, Scott ended up with Stevie Wonder, ended up historically one of the most Uh, historic bass player. He and Ray Parker Jr. used to play a lot together. And uh, uh, Scott played on so many hit records, man, hundreds of hit records and Bob Skaggs. And I just go down the list, but uh, uh, he, uh, he rest in peace, Scott Edwards. Uh, He was an inspiration to me to get that, to learn and get as much knowledge as you can.
0: But that's, that's phenomenal, and that's a message that needs to go out to everybody who's listening, is that it's not... The music is for your heart, the education is for your knowledge to give you opportunities to express more with your heart. Right. So, in your case, you've gone through the five, you've got your five albums. Is there a sixth coming, or are you retired? We're not doing music anymore. Is it, what's, what's No, the no, the,
1: there's another album coming. I just don't know. It'll probably not be in... 2024, I'll probably start working on it late 2024. But I do tell you what I am doing uh, that that's ins- inspirational for me is I'm using the technology now to record for other artists. Oh. So uh, Christian de Mesonis is one of the artists I work with. And his album's coming out. And I played on six songs. Uh, I did the horns on six songs on his album. And one of the songs I did, the story that I like to tell is uh, I I think we may have mentioned, I may have mentioned it, but uh, he was doing a song uh, called Hispanica that he that he wrote. And he says, hey, Bill, guess who's going to play piano on Hispanica? I said, who? He says, Bob James. I said, you better send me that music. (laughs) <laughs> you better send me that music. You need horns on that song. You got to have horns on that. <laughs> you going know, like, "Bob James, send me the song, Christian." And he was saying, "No, man, we got to have it." I said, "Send me the song." And he and he sent it to me, and I did the horn parts and and I did the horn parts like in a day, right? And they and sent it back to him. They go like, "Man, everybody loves this. Do you have any more ideas?" So then he gave cuz right at the time he was going like I don't have time to wait for your horns man this yeah. we're going to do this <laughs> and then they gave me more time and that song went to number 1 yep. It was the first song I ever played on man that ever went to number 1 it was uh Bob James Hispanica yep. uh Christian Day Masona's Hispanica featuring Bob James yep. and uh, it went to number 1 and even though I don't get any credit on the Cause there are no album covers anymore. You know, <laughs> back in the day, man, there'd be an album cover that said "Horns Arranged by Bill McGee" and played. Cause I'm playing like fifteen different horn parts on this thing, man. Oh. And uh, you know, and I didn't get any digital credit for it because there's nowhere to put my name on the on the digital file. But uh, oh. but I
0: talked to, talk to Christian. Uh, I did an interview with him a few months back, and right. He never mentioned you. Yeah, so I'm gonna have that? to reach back out to him and say, hey man, Bill McGee I, was telling I'm,
1: me I'm gonna remind him of that when we get off the phone, man, because <laughs> I I played on uh I was featured on a song Sexy Beast that he did. Yeah. And and then I played uh on Hispanica and I played on like uh You Only Live Twice, which is one of the songs mm-hmm. he has out now.
0: Yeah.
1: And then uh I just did two new songs for him last week. Uh huh. Again, under time pressure, you know, he's like, uh oh, man, these things got to be finished by Sunday, man. And I'm going, like, uh, yeah, okay, I'll see. You know, I'll see if I can get it by. But I, I got them done and they loved it. And I so that's the kind of thing when you're I guess everybody doesn't understand. Remember, I was telling you how much I love the technology. The technology is such now that you could send me a a, a, a home, I mean a rhythm section part. And I'll bring it here in my house. I'll go in my studio, I'll play the horns, and then I'll send you the digital files. And you just load them into your recorder or your computer. Yeah. And it's as if I was right there in the room. Yeah. And since since I do all the horn parts, the trombones and trumpet and brass and all of that, we did a song that uh, uh, You Only Live Twice, or uh, you only I think it was, and it has somewhat a similar to a James Bond theme at the end. Um, but it couldn't be James Bond, you know, it's, it's got to be close, but you can't, you know, you can't use the James Bond theme. And I had a kick out of doing that because I got to do the trombone parts, you know, ba-bam-ba-dum. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I, so I had a, I, it was really not, and I did all the horns on that, man. And so when I listened back to his stuff and I hear, I told him, I said, man, I don't know where y'all got that horn section from, boy, but they're good. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Well, I have listened to all you only live twice, and I was wondering who his horn section was. I thought he yeah. had done, I thought he had gotten some of the people from. You know, you watch some of his videos, and he's got some horn people playing in some of the videos that he's got when he's playing. And I thought, oh, is that the people that he had playing? I didn't
1: no. Know it was you. See, this is I, this is the I, world coming around in a circle because I talk yeah, to
0: him, yeah, and then I talk to you, and I find out you're his music.
1: I'm, so, a, I'm so the, I'm the horn player around. on that, so I don't do the saxophone or flute. I do all the brass parts. And uh, just FYI, we just—I just did one of my first live performances uh, in a couple of years. Since I had prostate cancer, I don't do a lot of live work because uh, my muscles in the abdomen. Uh, at the first, I didn't have the stamina, and so I performed with Christian recently at the Jazz Legacy uh, program. It was a great gig. Uh, all the, all of the horn players we had on stage there were five of us. Wow. And all of the horn players on stage have been featured uh, on his records. Uh, uh, Eddie Bacchus and Bob Malatek and Greg Boyer and the flautists. Uh, all of us were there together, and uh, we we got a chance. It was a good gig, man, to play with the other. Look, and I'm playing all of these parts that I had written. It was the first time I played them live. I'm going like, I'll see if I can remember that thing, man. But... Uh, <laughs> You know, so yeah, Christian, I'm gonna get him for not telling you about me.
0: Yeah. I mean, I mean, seriously, it does, it feels kind of odd that I speak I'm speaking to you and I remember the music because I played all of his music before I talked to him, and I was going through all the sounds and I was thinking, wow, that's really I love the horn section in this piece. You know, I love his his bass is good. Yes. And then you hear the the add-on pieces and it's wow, that's really good. Did he did he write all of that? Is that his work that
1: he's putting some, all that some, together? Yeah, some of that, a uh, lot of those songs he wrote. And I'm not too sure exactly all of them, yeah. but a lot, a lot of those songs. If he didn't write them, he co-wrote them right. with his, with his brother-in-law or with uh, or with someone else. And but then, I like I like working with Christian, and I like working with uh, you know other artists like that. Yeah. It, so it'll keep me busy. Uh, we between now and working on my next album, uh, I work with Roberto Tola. Who is a Spanish guitar player, uh, uh, I mean Italian, I'm sorry, Roberto. He is an Italian out of Sardinia, Italy. And he's playing on my new album, uh, on, on the song Summers in seri And I played on three of his, three or four of his recordings. Oh my goodness. And uh that's all done, you know, ele- you know, overseas, man. <laughs> you know, I so I enjoy working with I enjoy working with other artists. Um Doing the session work that I would have been doing live, like back in the day when we work with the OJs and stylistics and people like that. I'm yeah. doing that again, but I get to do all of it right here in the comfort of my own home.
0: Yeah, because before, way back in the day, you'd, I mean, you could work internationally by doing yours in a studio, making a session tape, you know, a reel, yeah, and, they and would then send over to Europe, ship it, and two yeah. weeks later he gets it, and he masters it with his music, and it's all right. put together on another reel that they then cut into albums, but yes. now, now, did you, you get, a, you get an email, oh yeah, read through it, sure, I can do something, and you whip it up, you get in your own studio, you're playing music, you send him a copy in you know, a quick rush, you're how does this sound? Oh, I love that. I'm going to change some of my stuff.
1: Right. It's, that's it's crazy. Exactly it's like right. you're
0: doing a live studio session, but you're in two different parts of the world.
1: And and we've done that. We, we would send stuff and somebody says, Oh, I want to change this because fit what you did. And so they would make changes to what they did originally because you know, it is like live. It's like, Oh man, I get a chance. Matter of fact, there's some things about it. That's even better than live because, I was telling somebody over there. I said, if 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 you did live horns and you paid five horn players to come in and do this song, once they cut it, they're gone. Yeah. I said, if you want to change some notes and everything else, either you got to bring them back in or you got to take it to where it is. Really? Whereas with me, they'll call me up and says, Bill, at right here at measure seventy-eight or seventy-nine, can you change these notes right here to something something? And I can go in and just change that particular part and send it to them. And they'll go like, yeah, that's what we want. Or can you add, you know, they'll say, can you add certain things? Yeah. And then I'll go in and add, you know, different notes or different things like that. So there's, there's some advantage to doing it uh, remotely and technically. Then yeah. the other thing is, if we're using the same software, it even makes it better because uh, Christian's uh, brother-in-law Christopher Valentine, who, who is his engineer and producer, he and I use the same software. So he'll just send me, like when, when we did Hispanica, he sent me the whole thing, right? And so he didn't just send me like a, a, a two track and say, hey, can you play with this? He sent me all of it. So I was able to take certain people in and out or turn certain people up so I could feel like I was really a part of the band Right. Like if the piano player is doing a certain little line in the background and you hear that, you go like, oh, that would be nice if the horns doubled that, right? And when he's sending me the software, I can just turn the piano up and play along with the piano player. So there's a lot of advantages to to the way we're doing it now.
0: And the, the thing is, what the the one, I won't say it's a disadvantage, but if you were to take some of the music that you're producing now and do it live, they'd need five of you. Or they'd need four other session players that hopefully play as well as you do on the other instruments that you're putting together. Because I mean, you know, give somebody a flugelhorn and they're not going to play it the way you play the flugelhorn. So right, right, you're gonna have to you're gonna have to live with the live. Well,
1: look, awesome. everybody, everybody has that problem live. If you got Quincy uh, Jerry Hay and the Sea Wind Horns. Uh, recording for Quincy, you know, and Quincy Jones produced your song, Jerry Hay and them not going on the road with you. So you just <laughs> you just got to get a good band. That's all. So, you know, that that's, you know, everybody go like, Hey, that's your problem, man. We're just doing the best that we can do.
0: We're just giving you the recording you live with the lives. That's right. Sound that, then now you
1: got to go out and hire the Ber- Brecker brothers or somebody to play. <laughs>
0: But that's funny because you do notice that when you listen to somebody playing live music, it never, almost never sounds like the recorded music. And I know a lot of that is, is you know, the overlay tracks that they play or they sing where they'll sing the song five times on different tracks and yes. then put it all together, merge it, yes. and they sound deep and rich, and then you hear them live on stage and it's... Hey.
1: It's a little fan kind of fan, right. right, 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 right. right. Mm-hmm. But the, I mean, horn, the same thing happens with horns. Yeah. When you think about, that's why Earth, Wind & Fire was so successful because their horn players actually uh, in that day gave you live what you were hearing on the record. And I, mm-hmm. I'll i be honest with you, man. I, I went to see Earth, Wind & Fire. I've seen them several times, but I know one time I went to Earth, Wind & Fire concert and I said, give the horns a raise. I don't care what they're getting paid <laughs> they deserve more. You know, these cats work so hard because Earth, Wind, and Fire stuff is so, it's like Tower Power. It's so horn heavy. Yeah. And it's all their songs are intense. You know, they, I mean, if you're playing an Earth, Wind, and Fire set, you're going to work your butt off. Yeah. And I told them, I said, man, get those cats a raise because whatever they're getting paid is not enough. <laughs>
0: But it's true, it's true. It's rare to find the horn section or or the you know the the band section that's actually part of the band. Right. When they're traveling, when they're touring. Like you say, you've got people that'll come in, they'll do the session work for you, and then they go and you've got what you're left with. And you go, Well, I'm gonna go live, but I've got to figure people out to play these pieces the same way or as close to the same way as possible.
1: Yeah. We what actually t- we actually talked about putting the Sugar Hill Horn section uh, for the 50 years of hip hop. We were talking about putting the horn section back together and going out doing some of the rap concerts. And somebody told me the other day that Dougie Fresh was looking to add uh, the horns. He says, "Hey man, if if Dougie Fresh calls us to go out and do these horn sessions with yeah I, I said, "Hey, I'm ready. You know, <laughs> let's let's go do it. Let's go do some rap concerts." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I can see that. I can. See Every, that. Everybody, everybody there is going to be forty and fifty years old, older now, So it doesn't matter. You know, I mean, remember this. This stuff is fifty years old. So, you know, nineteen seventy nine. Anybody who was born in seventy nine is no longer a kid.
0: Yeah, no kidding. Well, I mean, nineteen seventy nine. Geez, if you were listening to the music in seventy nine, you weren't just born. I don't That's know too right. many one year olds that were
1: right, right. on the
0: rap. You know what I mean? <laughs>
1: right, right.
0: They may have had it, you know. Their their moms or dads may have been playing it in the background for them. Yeah, they, they were playing. Double.
1: They were playing rappers delight in the background when the kid was a little kid. <laughs> <laughs> All right,
0: I'm gonna. I wanna. I wanna get to your song, the one dedicated to Donald Byrd. Um, so why don't we get there? Here we are, Bill McKee. Dedication to Donald Byrd. Flight time. Enjoy. Do jazz hands. Whatever we want.
1: <laughs> Which was the only smooth jazz song nominated for a Grammy this year.
0: Get out of town. Yeah.
1: That was the only, believe it or not, I heard uh, Jeff Lunt, who works for one of the record labels, he put it on there. Because I had five nominations and, of course, all the other. Out of all the smooth jazz artists nominated, the only one that made it to the final ballot was Jazz Hands by Bob James. Get out. Get out. Yeah. Ah, Everybody's furious. furious. They're furious right now.
0: Oh, it's the way of the world, my friend. It is the way of the world. There's different flavors, flavors of the week, and they're the only things that get through, and all the all the good stuff just seems to sit and wait for all of that noise to happen and, and move on, and then it goes back because there's really good in everything, all the different genres. I haven't heard a genre where there wasn't music that was of value, but there are some that it's it's just mechanical. There is no... There's no heart and soul in it. It's just, ah, let's make some money. Let's go and make some money.
1: <laughs> and put an auto-tune on it so that no everything is like auto-tuned, perfect. Somebody said that uh, I was reading something today that somebody was saying, man, he listened, uh, Jay Sinnott. I don't know if you know Jay Sinnott. He's a drummer, a, a well-known jazz drummer. And Jay was saying he listened to something on the top 20 or something. And he said all the records sounded alike. They were all auto-tuned, all had the same tempo all had the same type of vocals and he said everything just sounded like the other record
0: so i really want to thank you for spending the time with me and talking to me about all of all the things in life i wish we could go on and continue talking because we didn't touch back on on tree of life uh to understand how that was the choice as opposed to um life happens um but we can come back we can revisit because i really enjoyed the conversation i would love to come back and talk to you again Serious? yeah
1: Yeah, that's true well i thank you very much for the opportunity and uh just just to share briefly the tree of life is a salute to two of my friends who passed away and uh and uh their nephew is a talented musician and he played at the funeral and i gave the eulogy and i told him i said we need to do a song together And he came to me with this song called The Tree of Life. And uh, we sat down and recorded. And so it's dedicated to my friends, Larry and Shirley Jones. Larry was a very talented musician and had played on all of my previous albums he had. And um, so his nephew and I, Jay Baxter, we recorded The Tree of Life. And after it was over with, I just felt so moved by the song that I changed the name of the album to The Tree of Life because it's... um, he says, I promise you one thing for sure. Spring is coming and with it, brand new leaves. And the, that statement says that no matter what we go through in life, no matter how bad it is, at some point in time, spring is coming and there'll be new leaves and things will get better. And while, you know, we always see the the dark, but the light is going to come. And that's what this is all about. The tree of life is is a message of hope. And even in despair, you know, it's saying to everybody, like all the things we're going through now in the world, you know, we're going through some, some terrible things right now, but just keep in mind that things are going to get better. And and if people will keep that in mind, that even when they're going through the bad times and the rough times and the sad times and all those times, things are going to get better. So just as Jesse Jackson would say, keep hope alive.
0: That is that is a Beautiful, beautiful statement to end end the interview on. Thank you so much, Bill. Thank you for
1: having me. Thank you so very much.
0: And as I said, I'm hoping that we can touch back again and do this again in the future when music is the same, but the future is here.
1: Just let me know. When they, look, or either I'll call you and say, hey, man, they increased the streaming revenues, so we're all getting paid a little bit more money. I'll call you back up, say, let's talk about that. Man, I got a check for $5 instead of $2. (laughs)
0: we'll celebrate man we will definitely celebrate (laughs) all right thank you so much thank you and god bless you too my friend you too
2: Anyway.